Well, good morning, and I am excited to start our third lesson on the life of Elisha. We're calling this study the double portion of Elisha. He had asked God to give him a double portion of, of his spirit. He wasn't trying to one-up Elijah. He just knew that he needed God's direct and substantial involvement in his life and in his ministry. And uh, I echo the words with Elisha. I desperately need a double portion, as much as God would see fit to trust me with uh, in order to, to live my life. And I'm going to bet yours might be the same way. So let's uh, dive into 2 Kings chapter 4. The first uh, few verses, um, or actually the entire chapter will be instructive for us. Uh, on the God of miracles. Maybe a little bit of background as we get started. Uh, you'll remember that at the death of Solomon, David's son, the nation of Israel was divided, and uh, Elijah and Elisha, uh, his successor, they both ministered in the northern kingdom, which is known as Israel. Um, as our stories are unfolding, uh, we get a little bit of a, an institutional or a national uh, story in uh, 2 Kings chapter uh, 3. Um, the kings of all, the nation in the north, uh, which would be Jehoram, and then the king uh, Jehoshaphat uh, of Judah, and then the king of Edom, they all band together because their neighborhood uh, was uh, in, in, a, in a mess. Um, the rebellious king of Moab, a guy by the name of Misha, wanted to take on his neighbors. And Elisha was very reluctant to get involved. But eventually he does prophesy against uh, Misha. And uh, in an incredible miracle, God filled a valley full of a series of ditches that they dug he filled it full of water, but with the way the sun hit on the water, it looked like blood. So the Moabites were scared to death and withdraw, withdrew. Actually, Israel invaded their land and slaughtered a bunch of them. And uh, in the end, uh, Elisha's uh, involvement was seen as a very positive thing. It was a, it was a national miracle, though. And what I want to look at today are, are a series of four, what I'm going to call personal miracles, miracles that were performed by Elisha in the lives of some individual people. The first one is in those first seven verses of 2 Kings chapter 4. It's the miracle involving the widow's oil. It's really quite a simple story. Uh, the Bible says that a wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, my servant, my husband is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. Now his creditor is coming to take my two sons as slaves. So um, what do we know about this widow? Not a whole lot. Um, a first century historian, a guy by the name of Josephus, suggests that this widow may be actually the widow of the prophet Obadiah, uh, a minor prophet that we can read his words uh, in the scripture. We, we're not certain who she is, but we know that she's in some great financial distress. And we know, according to Old Testament law and Old Testament practice, 
um, that uh, when there is a debt that cannot be paid, a creditor can require uh, the, the person making the debt, or in this case, their sons or his sons, uh, to become slaves. And, uh, and that's what's about to happen to this widow. So she, um, she, she comes uh, to this situation crying out to Elisha, who responds, well, how can I help you? Tell me, what, what do you have in the house? And um, all that she can find in the house is a small jar of anointing oil, or some have called it a, a small anointing flask. The idea is that this is not what's being used uh, to help make food. It was set aside as oil uh, for spiritual purposes, and that's all she's got left. So Elisha says, I want you to go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jugs and don't ask for a few. In other words, ask for a lot. Get a lot of jars. And so she goes and does it. She comes back and um, it says uh, in verse number six that when all the jars were filled, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, well, there isn't another jar left. She's been filling each of those jars um, with the oil that was found in that very small anointing flask. And in a miraculous way, God has uh, duplicated that oil over and over and over again as she fills up all the jars that she's gathered. She doesn't run out of oil until she runs out of jars. Had she gathered more jars, I believe she would have had more oil. In the end, Elisha tells her to take all those jars of oil and go sell them and pay off her debts. So the very first personal miracle that we see in 2 Kings 4 has to do with providing for a widow and her, and her two sons. And God uses Elisha to multiply in a supernatural way uh, a bunch of oil so that she has something to sell. So now that she has uh, a way to, to meet the needs of her family. The, the second miracle, uh, the chapter just continues, now verses 8 to 37, with a second story. Um, this story is about a, a Shunammite woman. Um, Shunam is a, a small town, if you looked at a map in, of Israel. It's uh, to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Elisha was apparently uh, passing through that town regularly. We don't know how often. We do know that there was a kind of circuit that, that Elijah uh, frequented, uh, probably where the locations of the schools of prophets were. And so very, very similarly, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be surprised that Elisha is doing a similar thing. And so he's frequenting this town and, and apparently makes uh, very good uh, friends with this woman uh, and, and her husband, uh, so much so that uh, they decide to build him his very own room in their house. And the scripture tells us that they built it up on the roof. Um, in that culture, the coolest spot in the house would probably be up on the roof. And uh, took advantage of the cool breezes and so on. And so they build him a room up there. Uh, he's got such a warm relationship with this couple that at one point he, uh, he expresses a desire to do him a favor. And uh, in that context, his servant, Gehazi, mentions that the Shunammite couple doesn't have a child, do not have a child, um, and that, you know, the wife would really like one. 
the Bible says that um, uh, he uh, he wants to to please her. He wants to he wants to bless her. And he says in verse fifteen um, or verse sixteen about this time next year, Elisha said, "You will hold a son in your arms." And she said, "No, my lord, don't don't mislead your servant, O man of God." But verse seventeen says the woman became pregnant. Uh, and the next year, about the same time, she did indeed give birth to a son, just as Elisha had, had uh, told her. So a great miracle has taken place. A woman who's older has had a child. But the story goes on. Several years later, when the boy is old enough to be working in the fields, apparently he has some sort of a sunstroke and uh, uh, comes in with his head hurting, and eventually he dies. Now, the mother, her instinct is to run and, and tell Elisha, to let him know what's going on. The account in the Bible tells us that her husband kind of discouraged her. Um, he makes the comment that, um, why go to him today, verse 23, it's not the new moon or the Sabbath. Really what he's saying is, is you know, um, this is a work day. Uh, it's not a, it's not a, a celebration or a, a vacation or, a, you know, what we would call a weekend day. Uh, likely Elisha is not going to be available. But she goes ahead and travels to Carmel, which is where Elisha is. The Bible says um, uh, in the middle of verse 24, 25, he says, when he saw her, that is, Elisha saw her in a distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite woman. Um, I, I was struck by that phrase, when he saw her at a distance. Um, it might remind you, as it did me, of the account of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know, in that story, the, the Bible is careful to note that the father saw his son, his returning rebellious son, when he was very far away. Um, and, and, the, and, the, and the father responded so to the son uh, in love. Uh, in, a, in a similar way, Elijah, for some reason, is able to see uh, the Shunammite woman uh, traveling from a far distance and sends his son to, to find out what's going on, um, specifically to ask the questions, are you all right? Is your son all right? Is your husband all right? Now, she responds with a, an interesting um, uh, set of words. She says at the end of verse 26, everything is all right. All is okay. All is well. Now, stop and think a second. Her son has just abruptly died um, in her arms, actually. Um, and her response is, it is well. Reminded me of the hymn, it is well with my soul. It, it's it's a, an eternal perspective that she's able to, to draw from at a moment of great personal anguish. Um, and you should stop and think about how much of the details of eternity she might have understood at this point in human history. How much had God revealed uh, to his children? Um, how much did Israel know about heaven, about eternity, about what's coming next? It was fuzzy at best, and yet this woman is able to have a very e eternal perspective, a godly perspective um, and then almost uh, as quickly as she has that very glorious perspective, she shifts a little bit in her anguish with kind of a rhetorical question showing her humanity. Hey, did I, did I ask you to give me a son? I mean, why, why am I going through this? 
So Elisha, loving and caring for this couple, responds quickly and sends Gehazi on ahead. He's, he's running, that is the prophet Elisha is, but apparently he's slower. And so he sends um, Gehazi to, to run ahead and, and get to the house and to lay his staff on the boy. Now remind yourself of, of how important the staff is in, in the life of Israel. It was a symbol of, of God's power. Remember in the life of Moses, two different times that staff plays a, a key role. The first one is in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is concerned that the people will not know that he's really speaking for God. And God points to his staff and says, what do you got there? And he tells him it's a staff. And he says, throw it down on the ground. He threw it down on the ground and the staff became a snake. Reluctantly, Moses picked up the, the snake and the snake returned to being a staff. He was, he was making a point showing that the staff was a symbol of, of God's uh, tremendous power. There's a second occurrence that happens in the life of Moses in Exodus 17 when Moses uh, uses that, that staff to strike the rock so that the children of Israel can have a source for water. Um, uh, Elisha's staff is also a symbol of God's power. And he tells Gehazi to, to run on ahead and, and lay it on, on the boy. Um, he says um, in verse 31 that Gehazi went on ahead and laid on laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi runs back to meet Elisha and says, the boy is not awakened. Then in verse 32, Elisha reaches the house, and there was the boy lying on his couch. He went in, he shut the door on the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and they get on the bed and stretched out once more on him. The boy sneezed this time seven times and opened his eyes. And then he, uh, he said, call for the Shunammite, and he did. And when she came, he said, take your son. Um, a couple of interesting thoughts here about this. First off, the boy did not, did not instantly come back to health. Um, there was a a progression uh, as the boy was restored to health. Uh, it's interesting to, to notice those times in the Bible when God indeed raises somebody from the dead. And uh, we don't have time in this study, but I, in the notes, noted for you um, a few times, uh, I, I think four times in the New Testament when someone was raised from the dead, and it would be a worthy study to take a look at those um, Jesus raises up Jairus' daughter in Mark 5, the widow's son in Luke 7, the story we probably know very well of, of Lazarus being brought back to life in John 11, and then in the New Testament, or excuse me, and then in the book of Acts, um, Tabitha is raised from the dead. God is in the business of doing miraculous things with people's bodies, um, uh, and, and, uh, this is a, an example of, of Elisha being used of God in a, in a remar remarkable, miraculous way. The stories are going to go on, though, in 2 Kings 4. There's two more stories, personal stories of the miraculous. The third one is um, the story about the death in the stew. So the Bible tells us that he's returned to Gilgah. And uh, in our lesson 
a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Elijah had a circuit, and this Gilga is probably the one along the River Jordan. So he's back over uh, in that location. There was indeed a, a massive famine in the land. In Second Kings uh, chapter 8, uh, this famine is described as going to last seven years. That's a long time to have a massive um, famine in the land. So Elisha is meeting with men from another school of the prophets, and uh, he wants to respond to the physical needs of these guys as well and their families. And so he tells Gehazi, um, his, he's not named, but he's called his servant, so it probably is Gehazi, to put on a pot of stew for everybody. And I, I'm going to guess that a bunch of the people went out and started gathering things that could go in this stew I know when I make stew, I have a, a slightly different set of uh, ingredients every time I make it, depending on what's in the refrigerator. Uh, I think it was probably the same kind of thing for these guys. And they're gathering gourds to put in the stew, vegetables, if you will. Um, but apparently they grab a, a particular gourd that uh, was uh, poisonous. Um, scholars tell us this is probably something called the wild cucumber, and, and in that culture, they would, they would take that gourd, grind it up into powder, and, and maybe add the powder very, very carefully to certain dishes. Um, might occasionally cause a little colic, but normally was not a problem. In this particular case, maybe they just chopped the gourd up, and there was a larger quantity of it to, to the point that they were afraid they were going to die uh, from from eating this this stew. Verse 40 says, The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. Um, there's a, a an interesting parallel between what happens next and an, in a, an event that happened in the life of Elijah. In the first Kings chapter 17, there was a, a, a widow, the widow of Zarephath, who... Uh, had run out uh, of food. Uh, specifically, the Bible says she only had a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil left. Um, the flour uh, and the oil, uh, when Elijah uh, created his miracle for her, it, it didn't run out. She just had an endless supply. Uh, in this particular case, Elisha is going to add some flour to this pot of stew. And uh, once the flour was added, the stew became edible, and the and the men and the families that were part of that uh, school of prophets, their needs, their their physical needs were were met. Again, a personal miracle. Then there's the fourth miracle that appears in this chapter. It's it's uh, the feeding of a, of a hundred guys, a hundred men. Um, the Bible says that a certain man came from uh, Baal uh, Shalisha. Um, we're not sure where that town was. Some believe it might have been actually Bethlehem. Um, the term often, though, is connected with a Canaanite uh, false prophet of Baal. So we're not sure where he came from. But he's bringing 20 loaves of barley bread that was baked from the first ripe grain, along with some of the heads of the new grain itself. Now, why is he bringing this to Elisha? Well, uh, a, a, a reference to the Old Testament uh, will help us understand this. In fact, I want to read to you uh, Leviticus chapter 23. Let me find that in my Bible. Leviticus chapter 23 
and verse number 20. Um, God's teaching about all of the uh, various feast days and festivals that are going to be uh, maintained by the children of Israel. And he, and he speaks of, uh, starting in verse number nine, of something called the, the first fruits. Um, he says, um, speak to the Israelites, verse 10, uh, say to them, when you enter the land that I'm going to give to you and you reap the harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. And he's to wave the sheaf before the Lord, and so it will be accepted on your behalf. And then he goes on to talk uh, uh, some more about it down in verse number 20. He says, the priest is to wave um, the two lambs before the Lord as a wave law offering together with the bread of the first fruits. First fruits were those things uh, that were, uh, you know, harvested at the beginning of the harvest, and they were a kind of tithe. They were brought... Uh, specifically to the priests or to the Levites uh, as, a, as an offering. And you brought the first fruits, the first things that came off the vines, the first grain. Um, and, and, and by offering it to the Lord, it became a source of food for the, the priests and the Levites. With the northern kingdom having gone into apostasy, there were no working priests up there. So apparently the first fruits in this case were being brought uh, to Elisha. Now the the story uh, you know goes on to say I'm back in Second Kings now. Uh, these um, this bread that's been baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of the new grain were given to Elisha, and he says, "Well, give it to the people to eat." Now um, uh, the question that his servant asks is very familiar to the question that Philip asks the Lord Jesus in the context of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, that is one of the miracles in the New Testament that we find in all four of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record it. And, and John's the one that lets us know that Philip's the one asking the key question. And, and uh, Gehazi's asking the question here, how can I set this before a hundred men? In other words, hey, I only got 20 loaves of bread, and that isn't enough to feed this hundred guys. Similar that Philip asked, what, what, you know, what are we going to do, Lord? We've got 5,000 men plus women and children. The small little amount uh, we have, how's that going to feed these guys? I want you to notice that in this passage in 2 Kings, as well as the one in, in, in the New Testament, the problem was the person asking the question had his focus on the wrong thing. Here, Gehazi, and in the New Testament, Philip, they're focused on the situation. They're focused on the circumstances. They're focused on their earthly inventory. They were not focused on the God of the situation. And the God of the situation was poised to do a miraculous thing. And all they could do was, was count their resources. Twice in this account, Elisha is going to say, give it to the people. In verse 42 and again in verse 43. His focus is not on the inventory. His focus is not on the situation or the circumstances or what he's got at hand. He's focused on the God of the situation. In fact, he declares they will eat and have some left over. And they do. These 20 small loaves of barley bread 
when they were blessed and distributed, were enough so that they had stuff left over. This reminds me so much of Psalm 23, verse number 1, where the Bible tells us, The Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want. I am not going to find myself in a position of not having resources. Or, or thinking in the New Testament, in the, in the very uh, well-known passage in Matthew 6 that we call the Lord's Prayer, and he, and he has embedded in that prayer the, the request, give us this day our daily bread. Like manna in the Old Testament, God provides every single day our need, so much so that there is some left over. It's a remarkable, remarkable miraculous event the fourth just in this chapter. So in these four little stories, what is there for us to learn? Let's answer the question, so what? So what God did these four miracles that that he made it possible for the widow's oil to run long enough to pay off her debts, the the fact that the Shunammite's woman, uh, woman's son was raised from the dead, the fact that the stew was made edible, and the fact that miraculously a hundred men were fed. What, what does that mean to us? Well, I think there's at least four applications that you and I can take away from this passage. The first one is just the acknowledgement that bad things do happen to good people. Godly people do from time to time lack resources. It is true that godly people sometimes lose their jobs, Certainly during this time period of COVID and, and all of the other social upheaval that we're, we're living through, um, there are people who have lost jobs. These, these things happen to good, godly people. The thing we have to remember is that these circumstances do not represent a lack of care on the part of our Heavenly Father. They are the circumstances or the reality of living in a foreign, in a foreign, in a fallen world. There, there are repeated promises within our scriptures that tell us over and over again about how God cares for us, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. His plans are not easy to understand all the time, but they are always good. Listen to the promises in Psalm 113, verses 5 through 8. He who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth, who is this person? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Uh, He sits them with princes and with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Bad things do happen to good people, but God's people can rely on the fact that God has resources they don't know. Our attention and focus needs to be on Him, not on our circumstances. The second thing I think we can take away from these four miracle stories is that God definitely cares when things go bad. He notices. He's paying attention. He knows his kids. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, powerful verse. He says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, and it's sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His. There's not a time when we are in this situation or a set of circumstances when somehow God's attention has been averted. He wants to intervene on our, on our behalf. The truth of the matter is, He is intervening, but not always in the way we want Him to. But at no point does His care ever cease. Don't allow Satan to convince you, if you happen to be in a season when yucky stuff is happening, that that's an indicator that God no longer cares. The exact opposite is true. God's eyes are focused on you during this time to bring about a, an expected end. The, the problem is it may not be the end we want, but when we ask to see it from his perspective, then the miraculous begins to happen. Let me give you a third thing I think that these, these stories teach us. The, 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 and perhaps this is the most significant one. And that is that God delights in wanting to use the ordinary things of our lives to accomplish super, supernatural things. He wants to use the little things in our lives, the things that we would not take great store in, but when they're offered up to him, he uses them. He, he's, in, in essence, asking each of us the same question that Elisha asked the very first widow, widow in, our, in our four stories. He said, what do you have? And her answer was, I got this little flask of oil. God's going to ask you and I that same question. What do you got? And then he goes on about his business, the business of using whatever that is. Whether that's a spiritual gift or a natural talent. Whether it's some sort of a resource that you have amassed. Whether it's a position that you have or a relationship that you have. Or an opportunity in some way to influence others. When he asks us, what do you have? And we do a quick personal inventory. He is ready to take that then and use it uh, for, for his glory. Now, a couple of cautions uh, associated with the answer of what do you have. First off, we, we need to make sure that we make it available to him. We have to get up essentially every single morning and say, Lord, here, I give you my blank my job, my family, my position, my, my influence that I have here or there, or this talent or this ability. We have to offer it to him. He's not going to drag it out of us. But when we offer it to him, he's ready to take it and do extraordinary things with that. Implied in that same process is the fact that we have to empty ourselves. Vessels that were filled to the brim could not be used by God in that first story. They had to be empty vessels. If he was going to fill it miraculously with the, with the extra oil, the, the jar had to be empty. Vessels that are filled with stuff can't be filled by God. You and I, if we're just filled with self, if we're consumed with our own natural talents or abilities or our situation or our resources that we think we've got amassed, 
when we when we're focused on that, it leaves no room for the Spirit of God to come in and use it, to fill it and use it in a in a supernatural kind of way. I understand um, that the Amish people often uh, pray with very specific hand gestures. And, and sometimes as they begin their prayer, they'll, they'll extend their hands out and turn their hands over where their, their palms are facing the ground and kind of shake their hands. In essence, saying, I'm emptying out anything that I've got in my hands right now, Lord. Um, and then as the prayer continues, they turn their hands, palms up. And, and say in their prayer, Lord, my palm is up as a sign that I'm ready and willing and desire to receive from you what you have for me. We have to, we have to empty ourselves in order for God to, to take that emptiness and fill it with whatever he wants to do. And lastly, I think we need to remember when God is choosing to use these ordinary things of our lives, we need the perspective uh, that that comes out of a phrase of a of a song I, I I know the phrase is little is much when God is in it uh, that's a song by the Gaither uh, vocal band and let me read just a little bit of it it says in the harvest field now ripened there is a work for all to do hark the master's voice is calling to the harvest calling you does the place you call to your call to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forget his own. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There is a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Little is much when God is in it. God is looking for the ordinary things of our lives to be made available to him so he can do extraordinary things with him. And the fourth principle I want us all to gather out of these four little miracle stories is that God is looking for participants, people who are choosing to get involved. If you remember in those brief stories, Elisha always had people get involved. Uh, in in the first uh, background story we looked at, he made him dig a bunch of ditches, and then he had the the widow searching out empty empty jars, and he had others answering questions, and and some were making dinner, and others were feeding the masses. He he looked for a participation in the process of the miraculous. I think that is very true in in our day as well. The the Bible says on the on the sad side in Ezekiel twenty two that I searched for a man among them to repair the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I, I should not destroy it, but I found no one. God is looking for participants, and when he finds none, when no one steps up and says, here am I, use me, that's a sad day. But on the other hand, in Second Chronicles chapter 16, the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run run to and fro throughout the whole the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. God's looking for participants. He wants to he wants to pair up with them. He's looking for those who are willing to get after it. And so I ask you today at the end of a a, a, a fun uh, chapter with four 
really cool miracles. Are you ready to be involved in some miracles? Are you ready to get after it? Are you ready to participate? Are you ready to offer to God the little things in your life? And then step back and see what he does. I hope so. It's certainly my prayer. I've added some discussion questions for you. One of them is, have you thought much about the God of miracles? Do you think he still does miracles today? And can you personally attest to any? Would you like the Lord to use you in a significant way? Would you like, do you crave a double portion of his spirit? And does that thought scare you off or excite you? And at the end of that, I ask this question. What things should we all be doing or decisions that we ought to make or plans that we ought to initiate in order to make ourselves more available to his spirit? Well, thanks for listening. It would have been no fun without you. Have a great day.